Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Central London service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. It's Revelation uh, 21. And uh, John wrote as follows. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the Holy, Spirit, the Holy City, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. and They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. And one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of seven last plagues, came and said to him, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb, And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations on and then were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. goes on in verse 22. I didn't see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city doesn't need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by the light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut or there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Uh, Really thrilled to have Adnan and Jess Calm with us uh, this morning from the Marlene service. Uh, Adnan's got a real teaching gift. We get blessed uh, by getting to hear it this morning. Let's give him a really warm welcome as he comes to preach to us. Well, good morning, Central. Um, It is so wonderful to be here. We've just ran here from Stockwell, and I'm still probably sweating, and my heart rate's still racing, but it's so great. Um, Yeah, getting a double portion of church this morning, it's just, yeah, just fantastic. 
Um, this is, I think, probably the first time I have visited the central service. Um, I have been in this building before, but for other reasons, but it's so wonderful uh, to be a part of you. I am, um, as David mentioned, from the uh, Mile End service. Uh, Jess and I attend there and we help lead there. Uh, it's a real privilege to just extend to you our, our love and thank you for your welcome. Uh, it is really and truly a privilege to be here and, uh, yeah, just get to share this morning with you today. Um, for those of you that don't know me, um, I have been a part of Christchurch for around, I think, 10, 10 or so years. Believe it or not, I first visited when um, I was in sixth form college doing my A-levels. That was the sort of first visit I had, but then I started coming more regularly uh, as I attended university and I've, I've stuck with it since. So this, this, this community has really been a part of my own journey uh, as a Christian and, and, and following Jesus. I've yeah, just seen wondrous things happen. Um, and, and so, yeah, glad, glad to be here and, and, and just spend time with you. So um, we're wrapping up our series on uh, King Jesus. I believe we're wrapping it up. I always keep saying this uh, in so many sermons, and then I get surprised the week after when we continue the series. But I think this is the final um, in the series. And over the last few weeks, we've been exploring Jesus's journey to the cross, and we've been looking at how his power and his resurrection, um, what, what this means for our lives in today's world too. And today, um, it's probably already been mentioned, um, is it, today's Pentecost Sunday, uh, and it's a day where we get to remember as Christians when the Holy Spirit invaded the church in Acts 2 uh, and filled uh, Jesus followers with his spirit and power and presence and what's so amazing is that when the birth of the church came 3,000 new believers in one day it's just absolutely astonishing when the spirit of God moves what can happen and this spirit was the spirit who was prophesied in the old testament and it's the same spirit that Jesus promises us as his followers to be filling us every single day of our lives until he returns and he promises that this power that the church experienced 2,000 years ago is the same power that we get to experience right here and right now. So today, we not only get to celebrate different things. I'm sure uh, many of you have probably made, uh, made the most of the Jubilee weekend. Hopefully, you've celebrated a bit. Um, today, we obviously uh, get to celebrate Pentecost Sunday. But it's not just that. We also get to celebrate the goal of all history, the renewal of all things. Uh, Jesus promised the Holy Spirit not just uh, as, as, as a way to get by in the here and now, but actually to point people towards this new future and this renewal, uh, this time when he returns and completely renews and restores all things. And I guess the question that I've been asking as I've been reading this passage in Revelation 21, and maybe each of us could be asking ourselves is, what difference does knowing the end goal make to our faith now? Or in other words, what does Jesus's return in the future mean for my life in the present? Now, apparently, there's a, there's a saying in business. I'm not really a businessman myself, but I've heard that uh, it said, you start with the end in mind. And I think it's intended to encourage us to think about where we want to end up before we begin any new venture or any new project, to help you think about everything you need to do in order to lead towards that goal and avoid wasting time on the things that don't necessarily help you get into that right direction. And I guess you could say that in some ways, the, the life of the Christian faith is the same. 
In these final chapters of Revelation, we see this, this dazzling um, picture of the end of all things when everything that Jesus began is brought to completion. Death and pain and sin, evil and the brokenness of this world and no more, they're completely brought to an end. And we shall see God face to face. That this, for me, is the greatest end anyone could hope for and imagine, that we get to face God and embrace him in, in, in the new creation. And to live with this end in mind is so significant for what it means for us as disciples in the present. So I think there are two uh, big things that we can uh, have in mind when we think about Jesus' return, particularly from chapter 21. Um, and we'll try and unpack this a bit more. And the first thing, uh, two big, but I think simple things. First is a renewed creation. And we're going to be focusing on that in the first half of chapter 21. And then the second is a renewed culture within this uh, renewed creation, which is uh, our focus of the second half of chapter 21. Now, um, obviously, a, an obvious caveat, and you know, needless to say, there are probably tons of other things that we could explore and dive into in Revelation that we just won't have time to do justice in the sort of 30 or so minutes today. But if you are looking for a deeper dive, then um, I'd really recommend uh, to, uh, to listen to a series that Liam Thatcher, who used to work for Christchurch London, developed um, a few years back on Revelation. These are Excellent, excellent talks and studies. And if you want to do a deeper dive, I really highly recommend. Um, just a couple of other resources that I found helpful uh, in shaping what I'm sharing today. Um, Ian Paul, uh, who has done an entire PhD on the book of Revelation. If there's anyone who can give you some insights into what Revelation is about and the theology in it, then feel free to get one of his resources and books there because they are very, very meaty and very great, but they are absolutely fantastic. Um, and the final thing I would suggest is um, Andy Crouch, who many of us are familiar with, has spoken, I believe, for Christchurch London a few times, especially for the Everything Con Conference. Um, he's written a book called Culture Making, and particularly chapter 10, focuses on revelation and its connection to the renewal of all things and our culture. So just assume that any and all the best parts of anything that I say today comes from one of these resources here. Um, but it is worth starting with the context of revelation um, because it, it, it really helps us unpack what is going on here in Revelation 21. Uh, John, who's widely believed to be the Apostle John, is writing to churches in the first century who were facing immense challenges, immense challenges throughout the Roman Empire. They're under this continuous pressure to compromise their faith and, comprom uh, and, and conform to the ways of the world around them. So much so that they conform, the pressure to conform to values that go against what God's intention and purposes are for this world. And Revelation is usually labeled as an apocalyptic uh, literature, as an apocalyptic book. Um, and this simply means a sort of uh, disclosing or an uncovering of things, similar to if you come to a theater and the, and the curtains are drawn back and you get to see what's behind. Um, and, and it's full of visions. We see that it's full of visions and prophecies that disclose God's heavenly perspective on history, on current events, on the future. But as well as being a prophetic book, I think what's probably not often mentioned enough is that Revelation is actually a very pastoral book. And this might sound a bit 
odd and strange considering all the pictures of beasts and dragons and wars and judgment that we get. But if you read it, you see that John is encouraging and challenging churches that he very likely knew personally. It seems that he had a very personal connection with the people he was writing to, and he's encouraging them to be resilient in their faith, even through the most difficult of times. Now, the, the whole book pictures this battle between God's kingdom brought through Jesus, the slain lamb, in conflict with the kingdom of this world, referred to as Babylon. And you may know that Babylon was an ancient civilization in the Old Testament, which brutally captured and uh, held captive uh, Israel and sent them into exile. And for the Jewish mind, for the Jewish people, Babylon represented a civilization in rebellion against God. It was this unjust human system that God needed to upend. But throughout the Bible, Babylon actually becomes an archetype for, for any city or civilization that lives in rebellion against God. Egypt is described as Babylon. Sodom is described as Babylon. Even Israel is described as Babylon at some point in the biblical story. And in Jesus' day, or in John's day, Rome was considered Babylon. And all these systems and cities were manifestations of the same thing, a people that had given themselves over to the promises of evil and corruption. So if Babylon, if God's kingdom is to come, Babylon must fall. And throughout the book, there are these long poems and visions, which we won't go into today, about this fall. And John draws so much from Old Testament prophecies in Isaiah and in Ezekiel and in Daniel. But what is amazing about Revelation is that the way that Revelation ends is also how the story of the Bible begins. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see that the creation of all things, with all things being good and harmonious and free from death and evil and suffering. And then we have here in Revelation 21, we have the same thing in a renewed creation. The new heaven and new earth in verse 1 starts with this picture of a city, the new Jerusalem. And many or, or most commentators, I believe, understand that John's use of the word new here is more closely referring to renewal rather than brand new or starting from complete scratch. In the Greek New Testament, um, there are usually two words used for new. The first is kanon, which means a, a, a renewal. And the second is neon, which refers to brand new. And John actually uses the former, kanon. And I think this, this makes sense with passages throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, but it also makes sense with passages like Romans 8, where it says that creation waits with eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed, that creation itself is subjected to frustration in the hope that it will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We get this sense that the present creation anticipates being set free from bondage, not destroyed, but completely renewed and restored back to what it was originally meant and intended to be. And we also get this, uh, we have this sense from Jesus' resurrection as well. The tomb was empty. 
He didn't get a brand new body at the expense of his old one, but in fact, the body that he had lived in for 33 years was the very same body that was renewed and restored. So we have this sense through the resurrection that, that this future creation life breaks into the present. And we also get this sense for ourselves in 1 Corinthians 15 and 2 Corinthians 5 that our, our own bodies would be renewed and re restored and raised. And we see that this new creation has with it some continuity with the old creation, but also some discontinuity with the old. We see that the good things about God's creation remain, and in fact, are made even better. And that the bad things that were never intended to be part of God's creation are completely banished forever. In verse 1, we read that there is no sea. Now, this might sound a bit bizarre and, and, and weird to imagine a world with no ocean, but I don't think that's what John is, uh, is trying to portray. He's actually, in the Jewish mind, the sea rep represented chaos and disorder. And it actually harkens back to Genesis 1, where the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters before his creative decrees. He brings order and light into the disorder and darkness. There will also be no darkness or disorder or chaos in the new creation. There'll be no more crying, pain, or death. Again, alluding to Isaiah 25, where it says that God will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away every tear from all faces. And what we also see, and I think is really beautiful here, is we see the new Jerusalem traveling towards the earth. And I think this is deeply, deeply powerful because we notice that this idea of heaven and eternity is not about leaving this world and flying off somewhere new. This is the kind of view I had for a lot of my childhood uh, growing up. And I think I drew a lot of this from, you know, TV and films and pop culture rather than what the Bible actually describes. And when you read Revelation or Isaiah or Ezekiel, we see that God's plan for the future is incredibly real, physical and tangible. And I think that fills me with so much hope and joy, knowing that I'm not simply going to fly off somewhere for a disembodied existence, but I am going to matter in this earth. What we, it shows me that the physical elements of this world really matter to God, and that the new creation will also have very physical elements to it. And it doesn't picture us just simply leaving earth to be with God in heaven, but God actually answering his people's prayer, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. The city of Jerusalem comes from God, made by God, designed by him. The brightness of the city just contrasts with all the darkness of Babylon before. Its peace is, is in contrast to all the chaos and, and suffering. Its hope triumphs over all the despair it's like the curtains again are pulled back and we get to see what God has been working all along. Revelation tells you and me that wherever we find ourselves in this church age, from the ascension of Jesus all the way through to his return, whatever it is, history or what's going on around you, when things are going badly or you find things challenging, how this all fits within God's plan to renew all things. God is in control. God is in charge. And there's a sense in which he is allowing evil to do its worst now so that one day he will judge it in full. There's a sense in which he's um, doing things to call people to himself. 
There's also a sense that when God sets this whole world free and renews this whole planet, it'll be like when God sets the Israelites free from slavery in the land of Egypt and brings them into the land of promise. So on the one hand, we have the complete renewal of creation, and then we also begin to see a renewal of culture in the new creation. Now, on the surface level, I guess culture is simply the way that we do things around here. But on a deeper level, and this is drawing from what Andy Crouch has said, and he defines culture as what we make of the world. And ultimately, this includes everything that shapes our relationship with the world around us and the people around us. It's whatever shapes our understanding of our identity and purpose and the story that we are a part of and why we're here and where we're going. It's our understanding of the good life and how we cultivate and reshape the world that we're in. And in essence, culture is an act of creation. It's us taking the world as it's been given to us and making something of it often in very physical terms, whether it's creating painting and art with pigments, whether it's creating a delicious omelette out of an egg or making a chair out of trees and wood or making a a, a ring out of gold. But he also says that culture is how we interpret the world around us. So what does the gold ring on my hand mean? What does it communicate about me or about my relationship to Jess, my wife? So creation and culture are like two sides of this same coin. God created us. He fashioned us in his own image to reflect his goodness and communicate his love and purpose and creativity in the world. And then we go on to verses 10 to 14, which gives us a vision about the destiny, the ultimate destiny of culture. Again, We see that Jerusalem is a city that comes down out of heaven from God. It's emphasized again here in verses 2 and 10. And unlike the the Tower of Babel, which sat at the heart of Babylon, trying to reach the heavens, this new city isn't a human achievement. It's a gift. It's a gift like the first creation was a gift. It's the glory of God because God is its architect. And very much like the Garden of Eden, this is God's own creative and cultural work and we see that there's again a a preservation and a connection with the past both the nation of Israel with the names of all its tribes on the gates and the church with the names of all people uh, of all the apostles inscribed on its foundations now what does this mean well I guess it means that God's story in human history is not just forgotten it's not just swept aside but human names mark the gates, and the foundation stones. And then we skip over to verses 22 to 27. That, and we see that even though there is this strong connection with the past, it's not a carbon copy. There's no longer a temple where people need to go to encounter God's presence. There's no sun, there's no moon, there's no lights, but all these things have been paled by the presence of God's glory. He is the one that resides day and night And only those who have received the Lamb's gift of life are able to enter that city because his presence changes everything. All the corruption, all the chaos, all the sin and darkness and brokenness of the old creation is unable to enter. And here, I think, is where we get to the heart of the cultural vision vision in Revelation. The city 
is created by our master architect. It's the ultimate cultural artifact. The citizens are the, are the redeemed people of God, the redeemed people of the Lamb. A multi-ethnic uh, community from every language, every tribe, every culture. But that's not all that's in the city. There's also the glory of the nations, the glory and honor of the nations brought in by the kings of the earth. Now, when I first uh, read this, I didn't really think much of it. Um, but when, when you read a bit deeper into the sense of what John is saying here, he describes the nations bringing their splendor into this new creation. And again, I think this is echoing what Isaiah said in his ancient vision that he, he also pictured this future city where the sun and, and the moon would no longer be needed. And he says that the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. And he also foretold the arrival of all these kings and nations into the streets of the redeemed city. They bring their best cultural products to furnish the new world. And I just love these parallels between Revelation and Isaiah. They're so, so beautiful and striking. It's a city that, whose gates don't shut and night never falls. It's teeming with cultural goods, not just from Israel, it seems, but from all the nations surrounding her. Animals, ships, minerals, jewels, wealth, gold, incense. Even the way that this city smells is reflective of the nations around. And timber, all the finest woods, all appear to beautify God's sanctuary. Now, in, in the biblical mind, kings were simply the representatives of, of entire people groups. And the glory of a nation were, were their most distinctive and greatest cultural achievements. And these aren't just Christian things or Jewish things. They aren't just Christian songs that we see in the new creation. These are, these are goods and artifacts and things from all around the world, from every area of trade and commerce and art and agriculture, from all areas of the world. All this will furnish God's new world. Everything will have its proper place under God. And what I love is that this final vision of the city is one filled with God's presence, filled with his beautiful designs, filled with his redeemed people from every cultural background, but it's also filled with redeemed culture too. Everything gets restored, everything gets renewed, and everything gets healed. Isaiah even says that um, swords, which have been used for death and war and destruction, actually get changed into plowshares. No longer Will any nation rise up against any other nation? A time when all who are thirsty come to the waters and all who have no money come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. There'll be no cost of living crisis in this new world. I love the way that um, Andy Crouch summarizes this. He says that in Revelation 21, we find the new creation furnished with culture. Cultural goods will be transformed and redeemed, yet they will be recognizably what they were in the old creation. Or perhaps more accurately, they'll be what they always could have been. The new Jerusalem will be truly a city, a place suffused with culture, a place where culture has reached its full flourishing. It will be a place where God's instruction to the first human beings is fulfilled and where all latent personalities of the world will be discovered and released by creative 
cultivating people. All right, are you still with me? I know we got through a lot there, but hopefully that is just some helpful stuff to unpack the beauty and the glory that Revelation reveals to us about the return of Jesus and his coming kingdom. But I guess, what does this imply for us as disciples now? Well, here are maybe just two very simple, uh, very obvious maybe ways that we can reflect and think about in our own lives. And I think, I just, I just want to keep it simple because I think it's probably the best way to, for us to be, to be filled with encouragement and challenge. And the first one is simply prayer. Simply prayer. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus calls us to intercede on behalf of this creation. He calls us to pray for an earthly difference, to seek his will and his purpose on this earth as it is in heaven. How can we pray for God's kingdom renewal in our everyday, ordinary lives, for the people and places that we encounter on a daily basis? Now, I, I, I really... Um, when I first started following Jesus, really struggled with this prayer, your kingdom come. I, I sort of just, just said it, and it wasn't grounded in the day-to-day -day realities of my life. And maybe that's what we need. We just need to realign what this prayer, the significance of this prayer for our earthly lives here and now. And the second is our purpose. It's just remembering and reminding ourselves of our purpose, our purpose as the church, not to just be spectators in all this unfolding drama, but actually we're called to be participators in this work of renewal. We get to demonstrate this new creation life right now. As we seek God's kingdom on earth, we're called to live out in truth, in love, in faith, in justice, mercy, and forgiveness. Now think about how crazy that all actually is in a world where these things are so broken and skewed and marred and corrupt. I mean, all you have to do is turn on BBC News and you just see it all around us. Jeremiah 29 tells us, as God's people, to seek the peace and the prosperity of the city in which God has placed us. Because if it prospers, we too will prosper. And what I find funny, well, yeah, a bit funny and, and ironic about the passage is that this is right after Israel has been exiled by the Babylonians themselves. This is actually in Babylon. The Jews had been invaded. They'd been absolutely brutally exiled. But they were told to fully immerse themselves in their society, yet with total allegiance to a different king and kingdom. We get to be fruitful as followers of King Jesus in our city too. We can make good work. We can do good things in our work, in our families, in our homes. How can we use our creativity to serve in whatever roles or jobs that we have or ensure we pay attention, attention to the quality of service or products that we deliver, not skimping on details and doing things to excellence? We get to model godliness, maybe with difficult bosses, difficult parents or children, maybe with difficult tasks that we have to face on a daily basis or anything that really gives us a sense of dread and despair. We get to 
be stewards of God's grace and minister his love to those around us. We can stand for truth and justice. We get to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus with others and help them to find faith too. And we also get to mold our culture. You know, culture can seem like this big and all-encompassing thing, but there are these microcosms that you and I find ourselves in all along. And I shared this with Stockwell earlier this morning. I wasn't intending to, but I just remember a, mo a moment in my, um, in my studies at university, and it's probably convenient because we're, we're, we're in one right now. But I remember being in a study room and with all uh, the other students on my course there with me, and everyone was just completely head down in their own work and just completely focused on, on, on what they were doing, which is understandable. So much pressure, exams and coursework, whatever it was. And then I just felt this prompting by God in that moment to just simply get up and say, would anyone like a drink? <laughs> so simple. Would anyone like anything from the shop? I'm about to head down. And then slowly I started realizing that the more I did that, the more it changed the people in that room. Sooner or later, they started doing the same things. Usually they just go off and buy stuff, buy water or a drink for themselves, but actually they started offering others. There was a sense of hospitality that was generated, and we get to bring a sense of God's hospitality and generosity and care to our neighbors. We each have different positions that God has placed us in. We each have different skills, different personalities, different giftings and talents. And we get to somehow use them to reflect the glory of God's new creation in this city. Because what we do now really, really does matter in light of eternity. It's funny, as I, as I sort of wrote that down, it just reminded me of one of my all-time favorite films, Gladiator. Ah. Um, for those of you that have watched it, um, I'm sure you, you know this famous line um, that uh, Russell Crowe, who's, who's basically the Roman general, Maximus, he's addressing his troops right before they go into battle. And he tells them to imagine where they will be um, after the battle. And if they do imagine this, they will live and it will be so. And he says this, he says, hold the line, stay with me. If you find yourselves alone, riding in the green fields with the sun on your face, do not be troubled. For you are in Elysium, and you're already dead. Brothers, what we do in life echoes in eternity. Ah. <laughs> I just love this line. And I sort of imagine this is a sort of scripting that will make it into the New Jerusalem. But get this. Maximus is speaking, the, the, the troops that Maximus is speaking to have no idea whether or not they will actually win this battle. They have no idea whether they will truly win the war or if the Roman Empire that they were fighting and even dying for would last. But we have an absolute certainty. We know the end of the story. And we start our journeys with the end in mind. Jesus has already defeated death, and he will defeat every power, every darkness, every evil, every injustice in this world. The new Jerusalem will triumph. It will be victorious, and it will be established with a completely and radically new, different system to Rome or Babylon. We, as the church, are able to just have a glimpse into this eternity. Now, I don't know about you, but... This is so liberating for me, 
so liberating. I can live life to the full, regardless of my circumstance, regardless of my background or my career, regardless of how popular I am, or my relationship status, my wealth, or lack of it. I mean, let's face it, we all live in London. And I can live knowing that Jesus will carry all the best parts of who I am and what I do into his new creation and make them even better. And please don't hear me wrong. This is not about establishing perfection now. It's not about perfection now, but I think it's about direction, that our lives should look like people who have been markedly changed by our great God and our King. We get to point this world in his direction to his coming kingdom. And somehow what we do now will furnish the new Jerusalem. I, I, don't, I find this quite bizarre, and I don't know how. I don't know how exactly and what this would look like. And maybe he'll inscribe it on a pebble for me uh, somewhere in the new creation. But we all get to remember our stories in this creation and glorify God with it for eternity. And also what's beautiful is that as we look back, we won't even weep. We won't even um, mourn at the hardest of times. We won't even grieve at all the losses and pain because God promises to wipe away every tear and suffering. Somehow we'll see that even the most difficult things that we've experienced fit into God's plan to renew everything when Jesus, our King, returns. And that is my prayer for us right now, that Jesus' return would just fill us with faith and hope in our present, regardless of your circumstance, regardless of your situations. John is challenging us and he's encouraging us to see things from God's heavenly perspective. I wonder if we can stand and I can pray for us and then we're going to sing and worship this great God and our King. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just pray your kingdom come, your kingdom come. Lord, right now on this earth, we pray for your presence. We pray for your power. And Lord, as we've been thinking and reflecting on your renewal and your new creation, Lord Jesus, we just pray that we get to experience it more and more in the here and now. And I particularly want to pray for those of us here who really could do with an experience of renewal ourselves in our lives. Lord, as we offer up to you our hearts, God, would you restore, would you heal, would you forgive? Regardless of where we've been and what we've done, God, we bring ourselves to you and we surrender 
Thank you, Jesus, that you are the slain lamb who has overcome death and you reign victorious right now. And one day we will see you face to face, God. Face to face. Jesus, we pray over our city, over the people in the city, and we ask for your kingdom and your renewal to come right here. We even pray for this this university, Lord. We just pray your renewal in this place. Jesus, as we focus and fix our eyes on you, on the end goal, God, would you just fill us with faith and courage and confidence in you, God? Even in this complex world, even in this difficult world, full of bad news, we thank you that we have good news. It's Jesus. Glorify you, God. Amen.